Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Lighthouse instructor David Rothman discusses and reads excerpts from his new book, Living the Life, Tales from America's Mountains and Ski Towns. Living the Life is 38 tales of adventure and self-discovery, adrenaline and honesty. David reveals the soul skier's raison d'etre to find exhilaration, faith, grief, laughter, love, and everything else that truly matters in the heart of the mountains. Thank you all for coming. We are here to celebrate David Rothman and his new book, Living the Life, Tales from America's Mountains and Ski Towns. Um, I met David while attending my first Lit Fest in 2011. I met him in his workshop that was called Scansion Blast. (laughs) Towards the end of the class, when David had us write a poem, a task he undertook himself, just as he was finishing writing his, he cried out, Fish on deck! Something of which I thought was the coolest thing ever. In Chicago, at AWP, which if you don't know, stands for the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, David and I, over cups of wine, talked about the Lacanian term of jouissance, which, if you don't know, stands for a thing best spoken about to someone in the first floor, uh, first floor parlor at Lighthouse rather than on a recorded microphone in the grotto. <laughs> at LitFest 2012, I took another workshop from David. This one was called Colorado in Black and White. The class discussed regionalism and what it meant to be a Colorado author. David challenged the writers in the room by quoting Wendell Berry, who said, you can't know who you are until you know where you are. Hmm. I was waiting. I'm waiting. Thank you. Then I took the reading as a writer workshop on Hamlet. I've had a love affair with Hamlet since I was 19. I've read it many times and studied it and its critics and know the story's lineage, and one time dyed my hair when I had it, a princely Danish yellow, and was astonished to find that everything I knew, all my knowledge that I was planning to dangle and slowly feed like the choicest cluster of grapes to all and to everyone in class, was covered in the first half hour by David. This past year in Boston at AWP, David and I talked about first loves until, well, until we both had tears in our eyes. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) This last late fall session at Lighthouse, I took David's reading as a writer workshop on Paradise Lost. What you have to understand here is that Milton is a crazy mad genius and that the most wicked acrostic that has ever been, he wrote in book nine, lines 510 through 514. The class missed it initially in our reading of book nine. And as David began to lead us back to lines 510 through 514, I yelled out the words spelled by the acrostic. I mean, yelled it. And this caused Annette, the workshopper sitting to my left, to yell that same word. 
which was quickly followed by hoots and laughter and growls and hiccups. And somewhere in the room, a clown nose honked. And there was David sitting there watching us, grinning at what he and Milton had done. Here's a bio. David J. Rothman has been an East Coast NCAA Division I Alpine ski racer, a mountain sports journalist, and a ski and snowboard academy headmaster in Colorado. He co-founded the Crested Butte Music Festival and is poet-in-residence for Colorado Public Radio. He is the director of the Poetry Concentration and the MFA in Creative Writing at Western State Colorado University and teaches creative writing and composition at the University of Colorado Boulder and Denver's Lighthouse Writers Workshop. He lives in Boulder and Crested Butte. Now, there's one last thing I want to say before I bring up the man. And that is this, if David Rothman doesn't light your fire, then your wood is wet. (laughs) Please welcome David Rothman. It's it's really great to be here. I I love Lighthouse. I'm grateful. uh, Honestly, I think this is the best institution of its kind I've ever Seen and it's only going to grow from here. Soon they're going to have to move into the tech center or something. You know, it's going to be we're going to take it over, take over some corporate headquarters or something. And uh, that's all because of Mike and Andrea and and everybody who they work with and have hired. And I'm just so grateful to to them. I have to say uh, to Dan that you know it's really interesting to hear about those conversations at AWP and places like that because I, I'm afraid I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> A number of things that happened that happened there, but um, I do remember that um, I really scared Nick Arvin. I thought you were going to tell this story at the Chicago AWP because he's, as I recall, he spilled his martini, and I thought it was a terrible thing for it to go to waste, and I drank it off the table <laughs> where it was running in little rivulets, and um, I, I don't regret that. I, I really don't, you know, because it was a very expensive martini, uh, and I hope we'll be at a, I'll be at AWP together this year and many other years, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I'm going to read a little bit, and then, um, and then I guess we're going to do a Q and A and some answers, uh, whatever, whatever you want, you know. I just want to warn you, you know, so that I don't offend anyone. I am going to say a number of, of um, words tonight and describe a number of things that are involve uh, naked people. So I just want, I just, you know, because people get very sensitive about these things and I, I just don't want to, I really don't want to offend anyone for the next five or six seconds at any rate. But the, uh, I'm very grateful to Caleb Sealing, who's selling the books over there for making such a beautiful book and for all the work he's doing. Um, uh, I think that Conundrum is becoming the preeminent small press in the state. Uh, and it's, uh, I encourage you all to support it, not just my book, but buy them all. I mean, get the gift pack. <laughs> really, you know, become a frequent flyer. Uh, and there are all sorts of exciting things coming out of Conundrum that, are, that are, are going to come. I wrote this book over quite a long period of time, although I have others planned that I think, don't think will take as long now that I've figured out the idiom. And I wrote it because uh, skiing... Uh, and the, the, the life we live, especially in the Colorado mountain towns, the ones that have survived because they've turned into resort communities of one kind or another, 
is, is uh, so rich and so um, romantic and so exciting and beautiful. And most of the writing about skiing and the mountain towns has focused on um, technique, travel, gear, history, or the achievements of world-class athletes. And there's some of that actually in this book. And I like all that material. And I wrote for them. But as I was writing for the ski magazines over the last 25 years and the the, te- the regional magazines. I wrote, I did a bunch of pieces for Crested Butte magazine where I lived for many years, Telluride magazine, journals like Couloir and Off Piste and Powder magazine and, and so on and so forth. Um, it really occurred to me that we didn't have a body of writing about mountains and, and mountain towns and skiing in particular because it's really a relatively young sport in its modern incarnation that is anything remotely like the quality of the kind of writing that accompanies sailing or fishing, other environment sports. I mean, these are ancient sports with these magnificent bodies of, of writing in fiction and in essays. Surfing, uh, mountaineering itself. Does anybody know who the first person was to climb a mountain simply because it was there and write about it? This, this shouldn't surprise you, but it probably will. It was the poet Petrarch, um, who in, I believe, 1327 climbed Mont, Vant, Mont Ventoux. Mount Mont. Ventoux in southern France um, in his sandals, you know, and got to the top, got to the top. And he carried a he had a copy of St. Augustine's Confessions with him and he opened it and he did a kind of sortes Augustinii. You know, they, they would do this in the Middle Ages. They would open Virgil. It was called a sortes Virgiliane and, 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 and just point to a passage and ask. A, they would ask a question and then do that and see what Virgil said and then try to interpret it. So he just randomly opened Augustine at the top of Mont Ventoux. Mount Ventoux, Mount Ventoux, Mount Ventoux, and and he, and he and there was a there was a apparently it was a passage um, castigating pride. So he wrote about this and said, climbing the mountain for its own sake simply to see what was there was obviously a prideful thing. I will never do it again. But that and that's the first record that we have of someone climbing a uh, climbing a mountain for its own sake and writing about it. At any rate, so it, I think it's fitting that a poet did that. In any event, um, that's the purpose of this book, is to try to um, not write about skiing. Skiing is just a medium. There's a lot of skiing in it, but I'm going to read things that really aren't about skiing. In fact, the first piece I'm going to read isn't really about skiing. There's just skiing in the background. Uh, Really what it's about is the way we live now and the way we live in these towns and the way uh, people in Colorado and the West and the East live when they are uh, living this kind of life. And uh, there was a great Austrian ski racer who came over and became a great ski coach in the United States, as many did, fleeing the Nazis. Uh, His name was Otto Schneebs, and he once said, uh, skiing is not a sport, it is a way of life. Something I I believe to be true, and hence the title, Living the Life. So the first thing I'd like to read is called Elegant Snowflake, because I just just can't resist. Shh. It's very serious. It's called Elegant Snowflake, a haiku sequence. And um, I wrote it because uh, I saw this advertisement for a poetry workshop in a newspaper that a friend sent to me. He actually sent it to me. And this is called The Art of Snow Viewing, an Intuitive View of Snow. And this was um, uh, the, uh, the advertisement that appeared. It's the epigraph to the essay. Snow and avalanches like all wonders of nature, reveal themselves on micro and macro levels. Japanese artists, especially many of the ancient haiku poets, 
lived much of their lives in snow. You think that's funny? (laughs) By reading their poems, one can begin to understand that the snowflake is much more than frozen water falling from the sky. I always thought that was sleet myself, but you know. We will explore these complex and elegant forms, the forces in our atmosphere and imagination, which constantly drive this dynamic system. It has never snowed in in my imagination, but well, okay. Along the way, we'll contemplate the poetry and metaphorical power of snow and how mountain communities coexist with and pay tribute to its destructive manifestation. No previous experience with snow, (laughs) skiing, or avalanche awareness is required. I couldn't resist. Uh, So these are my... 23 haiku, which I'm about to inflict on you, um, about elegant snowflakes and the destructive manifestation of snow. Uh, And if you'll recall, the haiku is, you know, in English, which we acquire through the French as we acquire so many other great things like uh, syphilis, for example. (laughs) The, uh, is, uh, it's an adaptation, it's a syllabic sort of malformation of Japanese poetics and you know the first the first line is five syllables and the second is seven and the third is five right so you can count along with me in the first one Uh, part one you can do it on your fingers the snow is falling they're all haiku I am really fucking drunk why am I naked? <laughs> they, all, they all conform to this pattern. The snow is falling. I am really fucking drunk. Why am I naked? The snow is on me. I am in a snowbank now. It is very cold. It is very cold. <laughs> Beautiful snowflake. Why are you stuck in my eye? Fuck off, you snowflake. (laughs) Thank you. In Colorado, we think snow is beautiful. We like vodka, too. I need a blanket. Where are the apartment keys? I'd like a drink now. Cherry blossom? What cherry blossom? I don't see a cherry blossom. (laughs) Elegant snowflakes, I can write my name in you like this. Wee, wee, wee. (laughs) Part two. Excuse me, mister. Could you please help me to break that stupid window? Thanks. I'm okay, man. It's my apartment. No keys. That... It's my beacon. I am wearing it in case snow falls off that roof. Look, battery's good. No, most people don't wear avalanche beacons and no shoes. Or clothing. Did I tell you that my girlfriend moved out today? Hey, thanks for the ride. 
those flashing lights on your car are really cool, dude. I don't have ID. Still snowing. You know, snowflakes are more than frozen water. Shit. Part three. Why are you laughing? Is it something that I said? Her name is Ashley. She left this bottle of vodka, and so I drank all of it. So there. These clothes don't fit right. Orange is not my color. Sorry I threw up. You guys are funny. This bed is too hard for me, but warmer than snow. Do you like the snow? I like skiing in the snow. Let's all go skiing. Ashley has great tits, but sometimes she is so mean. I'm getting sleepy. Here is my beacon. I think we can turn it off. See you for breakfast. Do me a favor. Would one of you call Ashley and tell her that I drank all the vodka, but that her cat is inside and I forgive her because she is like snow, a wonder of nature that falls from the sky. (laughs) Now that's what it's like to live in a mountain town. So, uh, oh gosh, it's such a, here, okay, this is called Back to the Butte, I haven't read this in public yet, and this is about moving back to Crested Butte after having moved away, as you'll see. Uh, After living in Crested Butte for a decade, my wife and I tried to move away. When we announced we were leaving, longtime locals nodded their heads, smiled knowingly, and said things like, we tried that once. But Emily and I just laughed at them. Ha ha. We'd had enough, or thought we'd had enough, of first tracks in Phoenix Bowl, of small town politics, of making pies and jam from the wild raspberries in Wolverine Basin, of mountain biking Trail 401 in shoulder-high flowers while hummingbirds fought in the sweet July air of impressionist sunsets, huge backcountry descents, good friends, perfect double rainbows, etc., etc. Enough with the rainbows already. So on July 7, 2004, I clambered up into the driver's seat of a rusting monster U-Haul and spent four wretched days lashing it across the desert to Southern California to see what life might be like on the outside. We'd lived all over the place before settling in Crested Butte and starting a family in the early 1990s and figured we might as well give California a shot. Something about endless sunshine, big city culture, surfing, and a good job, I can't really recall. Even the truck didn't want to go. It kept breaking down in the 105-degree heat, and I remember thinking that I now understood why the government used to conduct nuclear tests in the Mojave. The before and after pictures look the same. Nuclear test, what nuclear test? I knew I'd entered another part of the world when signs started appearing at the gas station saying things like, Teller is armed. But I forged bravely onward like the Jodes in the Grapes of Wrath, lumbering west in my compromised diesel behemoth, searching for the promised land. About 30 minutes after school let out the following spring, my wife basically picked up our children and a few books and valuables and said, we're going to Crested Butte for the summer. See you in a few months. 
This struck me as a clear sign that I should consider moving back. Later that summer, after many long talks, we finally did reach that decision and put the California house on the market. I then drove our little red Subaru back across the great desert. So, probably not much wiser, though we did hire pros this time to move our furniture. But definitely a year older, we returned to Crested Butte and saw it in a different light. Here, with some thick description, as the anthropologists like to call it, are some thoughts about what makes the place so special from the perspective of someone who has been there and back again. The first thing I noticed when I got back had to do with the Subaru itself. In Orange County, I, I hope nobody here is from Orange. Is anybody here from Orange County? Because uh, you're, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna. I'm. I'm just. I need to speak my truth. Okay, you know, we can. <laughs> in Orange County, <laughs> driving a little Subaru feels a bit odd. People look down at you from the command posts of their sparkling yellow Hummers or up at you as they blow past in their cute little Jaguar Boxsters, furrow their brows and then turn away as if embarrassed. Apparently my car had marked me as an untouchable or maybe worse, a Democrat atheist. Wait a minute, I am an untouchable. But that's another story. The Subaru liked being back in Crested Butte. Everyone talks about the Butte's funky old houses and the bicycles, but I don't think the internal combustion machines get their due. After all, we drive off-road and on ice with studs, dude. Yep, we have pieces of metal sticking out of our tires. Our cars have serious stories to tell. My first evening home, I was emptying out the happy little Subaru after driving back across the Mojave. Rico, the orange cat who had stayed with our house sitters for the year and who I'm sure didn't remember me, even though I'm the one who saved his scrawny kitten butt from the pound, was rubbing against my leg in the dark. Generally a nice feeling. I'd like to think he had missed me, but he was probably just hungry. I'd like to think he had... I was sporting shorts and flip-flops and holding a pile of stuff in my arms. I gracefully closed the Subaru door with a hip check. Although it was dark, I could tell from the immediate howling, hissing, and snarling that something had gone horribly wrong. And you'd probably make sounds like that, too, if you were hanging by your tail from a car door. Even a Subaru. Humanitarian that I am, I immediately opened the door. Well, I tried to open the door, but it was locked. And as I, and as I fished for the keys, Rico went after my leg like a fresh piece of fish, or a mouse whose time has come. What does this have to do with Crested Butte? Well, I wound up in the hospital the next day with a colony of Pasturella multocida, a bacteria common in the mouths of cats that does particularly unpleasant things when injected into a human leg. This particular colony was trying to eat me for lunch. Upon seeing this, the kind people at the Gunnison Valley Hospital put enough IV antibiotics into my body to kill every microbe within 20 feet. I was there for two days, and doctor after doctor, nurse after nurse, whom I had come to know over the years, people who had worked for me at one place or another, or delivered our children, or with whom we had gone cross-country skiing under a full moon, or traveled with us to the South Pacific, would walk in and say, Dave, great to see you, which struck me as a bit odd under the circumstances, as I was unshaven, smelly, infected, drooling, and occasionally whimpering with fear that they were going to cut off my leg. But it was a touching gesture nonetheless. That kind of thing just doesn't happen in most other places. On the one hand, it can be a bit odd when the woman who was your son's nanny and is now training to be a nurse is changing your IV, but it's sort of reassuring as well. I knew who she was, and I trusted her, and honestly, that made it hurt less. Sort of. So I'd been in town for two days, and already I owed deep thanks, and maybe even my life, to Lee Lynch, Colleen O'Sullivan, Lori Guerin, Jay McMurrin, Barb Hammond, Ariel Tidwell, Abby Kuhns, Christine Holbrook, Shannon, and many others. 
Thanks, guys. And the leg is okay. Cool scar. And I didn't break Rico's tail. That was when it struck me that this sense of community, so often invoked but rarely described in its gritty reality, is ultimately what Crested Butte and a few other great mountain towns are all about. The lifts and the backcountry offer up great skiing, but the town is more unusual than the mountains. The sense of community extends further and is more subtle than most realize. If you're a visitor, you may notice after a while that locals do something that the Telluride writer, Peter Shelton, a great writer, by the way, who wrote a great book about the 10th Mountain Division called uh, Climb to Conquer. Uh, He calls it the wave. He doesn't mean thousands of people standing up in a stadium and spilling beer all over each other, but the way that people greet each other when just passing by all day long. Slight raising of the eyebrows, one hand off the steering wheel, or the bike handlebars, nod of the head, smile. Okay, it happens in Telluride too, but CB waves are better. It's hard to figure out what the wave signifies because it's more than hello, but somehow different than how are you. In my view, it's something along the lines of howdy, which is, of course, just the first half of how do you do. Howdy. Everything's okay here. Just letting you know. Nice to see you. Hope you're good. On we go. People don't do the wave on major freeways, nor do they do it on the streets of developments. Nope. Just don't do it. It can get sort of lonesome without the wave, but it is, after all, impractical when traveling 80 miles an hour on a 16-laner or trying to cross Madison Ave at 54th Street. Dangerous, even. Frankly, attempting to be that familiar is just a bit suspicious to most folks in such circumstances. As the Irish like to say in New York, laugh and the world laughs with you, but not on the IRT. No, they move away, hold their belongings just a wee bit tighter to their chests and readjust their iPods. Try it sometime. You'll see. It took me a while to get out of the habit of the wave when we left town. In Los Angeles, people usually seem to think it was preparation for a drive-by shooting. It was a pleasure to be back doing it again. Sometimes I would go out and walk around just to do gratuitous waves. (laughs) Hey, how are you? Community matters in Crested Butte on a larger scale, too. Of course, it can be embarrassing when the people who run the local flower stores remember the dates of important events in your life better than you do. But it all general true story. But it all generally sorts itself out because they're always willing to work with you as a team. This is a true story. Ring, hello. Hi, Dave. It's Laura. Oh my! Did we change that? Yes, to Linda. It's Linda over at the florists. Isn't it your anniversary today? Need some flowers? Uh, wait. Yeah. Uh, yes. Of course. I was just. How about a dozen roses? Great. Where should I deliver them? This kind of thing applies to raising children as well. People are always looking out for your kid, even if there's a certain lack of privacy. A conversation may begin in the produce section of the supermarket with a question like, so, is little Johnny still a dyslexic bedwetter? (laughs) Getting a bit old for that, isn't he? Hey, I read this great book. Honestly, you might reply, I just want to buy some lettuce. But I have to say I prefer that whole thing to the situation some other places I have lived where people seem to have a rather astonishing level of fear about the world. Cue the soccer field. Thwop, 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 thwop. Coach, this is Mrs. Jones. Johnny's a bit late for practice, so I have him incoming to the LZ at the southwest corner of the field on his dad's Cobra attack helicopter. He'll be attending practice today with his SAT tutor. Roger that, Mrs. Jones. LZ, clear, proceed. We have shin guards and number two pencils. Spend a little too much time around that kind of thing, and you can start to doubt yourself. You catch yourself thinking life is sort of dangerous, and, you know, maybe I do need a Cobra attack helicopter. And, of course, that's a slippery slope, because after the Cobra attack helicopter... I'm sorry, the Orange County thing. I mean, come the Botox parties and the shiny little lime green shoes, and then you need a nicer place to park the stupid helicopter, and it just goes on and on. (laughs) In most of these places, people don't even think about going somewhere on a bicycle. 
whereas in Crested Butte, children have the run of the entire town on one by the time they're 10 years old. Another true story. When we were moving into our new home beyond the Great Desert in Orange County, one day the neighbor across the street saw me on my bicycle and said, oh, that's your bicycle. <laughs> of course, I said yes and looked a bit puzzled. By way of explanation, she then said that she hadn't thought we were, quote, bicycle people. By which I suddenly realized she meant poor and or brown. She was a very nice person, but actually, I thought she just comes from a different place. But then I realized suddenly that I was the one from a different place. (laughs) Oops. I wanted to tell her that in the town where I used to live, things are different. People go to work on their bicycles. They go out to dinner on their bicycles. They climb mountains on their bicycles. They ride them in January, that stud thing in the tires again. They light them on fire and jump through hoops on Elk Avenue. Well, some of them do. I wanted to say it's a bit like Holland, just higher. And I love bicycle people. But I didn't say any of that. I just smiled and said something like, yep, that's my bicycle. We had a great year in California, though it was in fact cold and damp, just as the song says. Name the song. Go ahead, I dare you. The Lady is a Tramp. Hates California, it's cold and it's damp. Sorry, wrong, huh? Second or, <laughs> second or third wettest year on record. The skiing in the San Gabriels right above L.A. was excellent, or sick bird, as the CB locals sometimes say. Bomber maritime snowpack, lifts running into May at Mount Baldy, which is really a great ski hill, I have to say. We started to make friends, but like everyone in the L.A. area, I realized that our friends were scattered like grape shot all over the place. We went to the amazing beaches. I bought a surfboard and had a lot of fun being thrown repeatedly on my face. We went to the concerts, we ate at the fancy restaurants, we went shopping for Cobra attack helicopters. We learned how to enter the freeway like a bullet and pass on the right at high speed, punching it through the blind spot. But in the end, we missed our friends. We missed the wave. We missed being bicycle people. We missed going to the hospital or the post office or the flower store or the grocery store and hearing the latest news, even if it was about us and totally untrue. And yes, we missed the rainbows, the big double fatties, every color clear and sparkling, arcing over the butte late summer afternoons when a thunderstorm is lifting off and the entire valley seems to be taking stock of itself and saying, ooh, I am so beautiful. No Botox for me. Thank you very much. Just watch this. And so we moved back to the land where snow first drapes the high peaks in late September, then turns into a dangerously faceted continental snowpack by Christmas, where everyone seems to know your business, and yet you all feel dwarfed by the larger business of mountains, where my sons can bike to school and I can bike to work, and my wife and I can ride our bikes when we go out to dinner, and where life goes on in the way of post-industrial villages connected to the world by jets, cables, repeaters, satellites, and automobiles, but the day-to-day remains human. That humanity is the real reason why people visit not just mountains, but also mountain towns and become enchanted or fall in love with the place to the point that they can't leave. Those of us who have lived there were drawn in not only by the perfect beauty, but also by the flawed humanity. The mountains and the town exist in a balance that is more and more rare. In wildness lies the preservation of the world. Thoreau didn't say wildness was the world. He said its preservation lies there. But that world includes us and how we live as well. That's the town. At any rate, it was good to be back, even if we didn't stay. We now live most of the year in Boulder, which is almost a mountain town. And we still spend at least three months a year in Crested Butte. After all, it's a big world out there and it's good to explore. And moving far away taught me something, how hard it is to leave and why so many people have tried and failed. It's always good to come back to the Butte.
Thanks. Um, well, maybe one more, and then we'll do some uh, questions. Um, so, uh, I think I should read one about, about skiing. Um, so, I think I, I'll read this, this, this piece called Dreamline, which is, in fact, a, um, a description of this ski line at Snowbird in Utah, uh, that is depicted on the cover of the book in a f- great photograph by Chuck File. And it, I was very glad that he took this photo in uh, April of 1986 because the day afterwards I blew my knee. I ripped it to pieces. And I, I don't know if I ever did anything quite like this again. I had done it many times up to that, but he got one of the last pictures because, um, frankly, it was completely stupid. But um, this is called Dreamline. Uh, I think there's a rope across it now. That gully dropping off the skier's right of lower chips. And there probably should be because it's stupid. But to try telling that to someone who can pull it off in a glory of arrogance and testosterone poisoning would be like that old blowhard telling Hamlet, this above all to thine own self be true, etc., etc. And I don't know what anyone else called that line, but SFB, i.e. shit for brains, is what we called it. (laughs) Laughing at ourselves as we drop into one of the three vertical finger entries committed to freefall, facing the gully's other ugly wall. The trick is never the jump. It's the landing. This one was tricky because as you came mocking out of 50 near vertical feet of narrow straight lining, you had to deftly set a left edge and vector just right up the angled ramp slightly downhill from your entry on the opposing side to avoid both the full-on fall line left side skilla of gully throat acceleration that would lead like a perfect theorem to inevitable oblivion blow up or the right side smack-down charybdis of that bone-crunching wall. But with such a tiny margin for error, if you did in fact stick the up-angled exit to opposite slot, you would then crest out at about 40 and get hucked like a scud, knees into your chest, easily 25 feet up and 100 out over the open slope beyond it, feeling for a few giddy moments like a small telecommunications satellite. And if the snow were right and you kept your wits about you, hands forward, riding the apex of your own bright rainbow, you could then extend your right leg and land in the deepest, sweetest crud carve imaginable, sailing away laughing and more unscathed than a blue angel, than a proton blowing down an accelerator, than a ray of starlight, than a lover's other in a long, deep, perfect kiss." Indeed, like a sailor bound, singing across the wine-dark waves for home, you could become an utterly imperfect animal, fulfilling a beautiful dream. So, thank you very, very much. So, so how should we do this? Uh, do you want to ask I, I, you know, I'm your humble servant. Um, I'll be happy to buy everyone a drink. I mean, I don't... Uh, you want... Sorry? Corn. Corn. Uh, why about corn? Why do you ask? 
Yeah. Um, how many of you ski or snowboard or spend time in the mountains? A lot of you. Great. Well, it is Colorado. So snow is this, you know, water molecules are amazing. Um, among other things, uh, one of the interesting things about snow that really is necessary for the existence of life on Earth is that unlike most chemical substances, when it gets below a certain temperature, it doesn't contract, it expands. And this is why ice floats. And that temperature is four degrees centigrade uh, above freezing. That's why we get snow crystals, and that's why, we, that's why pipes burst, uh, because the water freezes and expands and bursts the pipes. So that's a very strange quality. And uh, what that means is that when snow falls, it has expanded from drops of water into snowflakes, and they, they um, have these little interlocking hooks, right? That's why all this snow can hang on a hillside, because it all sort of hooks together in these crystals. And um, that's one of... Without going into too much detail, that's why it gets so dangerous because the, the, the snow crystals transform inside the snowpack over time depending on temperature and things like that. So um, a corn is an incredible um, skiing surface. So, you know, the mountains don't care and the snow doesn't care, but we care. And what happens uh, is that when in the spring, uh, the all of the different layers in the snowpack melt, obviously, when it gets warm enough. Uh, and you get what's called an isothermic snowpack, meaning it's one temperature from the top to the bottom. And it just freezes and melts and freezes and melts like a gigantic Slurpee. And what you'd want to do is ski it early, which is very different from right now when there are these different layers in the snowpack at different temperatures with different kinds of crystals. And that's why you get avalanches. And without going into too much detail, we'd be here drawing pictures for hours. But the, um, uh, it's a very, very, very interesting fascinating phenomenon because water and snow are fascinating materials for some of the reasons we just discussed. Corn um, occurs when the snow melts and freezes and melts and freezes until it turns into this one gigantic isothermic bed of snow. But um, what happens then is that there are still spaces in between um, all of these frozen pieces of snow because if it had air in it to begin with because you had these crystals. But when they melt and freeze and melt and freeze, what do they start to look like? They start to look like little corn kernels. And they're all held together in this beautiful, airy lattice. It's basically an ice lattice. Um, it hasn't been crushed and stomped and, you know, by snowcats and skiers and so on and cars. It's, um, so it's this astonishing material. If you, if you um, cut into it, it looks sort of like a honeycomb when it's frozen. Obviously, when it's wet, you can't cut into it. You just get wet. But, it's, uh, but when it freezes at night, then, um, because there has been nothing on it um, except itself, it looks like this, this honeycomb lattice. And when it, the, the thing is you then climb it in the spring. This is in, depending on the exposure and the year and the temperature, April and May especially, which are really the best months for backcountry skiing in Colorado. And when you climb it, um, you climb it very, very early in the morning. Uh, you know, at about four in the morning, ideally. And you get to the top while it's frozen because you can walk on top of it and you wait for about that much of it to melt. And uh, I talk about it in a number of the essays. It is the most amazing experience. It's nothing like any ski area skiing you've ever had. It is really like skiing down a tilted champagne glass for 3,000 feet because the stuff, um, the, the, what happens is the top inch of the lattice has melted. And so it sort of makes this beautiful swishing sound as you ski on it and it's, absolutely completely consistent, absolutely completely smooth. 
it is like having sex with God. I can't. I mean, really, you are you are you are at fourteen thousand feet under a bright blazing sun. You know, sun on a, under a cobalt sky on the right day with your friends and a couple of curious goats who look at you and go, "What what is wrong with them?" You know, and um, we're and uh, it is really uh, it's really one of the most amazing encounters with the natural world. Um, possible when you hit it on the right day. And it's, and the other thing about it is it's safe because if you go late and the thing is you only have a very short window because as soon as it gets too wet, you can't ski it. As soon as you get about more than that, even you're in trouble. So you have to time it just right. And you have to leave from the top when it's still sort of frozen there and then get most of the, the run in the good corn. And then at the bottom, sometimes, you know, it'll, it'll get slushy, but the idea is to time it right. And if you time it right, there's like this 20 minute window and that's it. If you're late, it's very dangerous. If you're early, it's frozen. If it clouds up, it's frozen. You know, I mean, so uh, the moments that you get this, and these are some of the greatest skis I've ever had in my life. I've had one like that on Mount Superior in Utah, on Mount Bross, uh, here in the Rockies, on Torrey's Peak. Torrey's is the 12th highest peak in the state. It's 12-2. Uh, we climbed at 3 a.m., we waited on the top for it to warm up. It was 100 degrees in Denver. It was blowing 40 and 28 degrees on the summit that, that day, 1993, July. And I can tell you exactly who was there and so on and so forth. And we skied this thing and we hit it just right. Came around the corner, the wind died, and it was corn right to the car, like on a ramp like that for 3,500 vertical feet. The last turn, you made the turn in the snow. You could hear the snow go kaplink, kaplink, kaplink on the hood of the car. And then, you know, you just go, God, take me. I'm ready. Just, <laughs> I'm done. I'll die now. It, it, and, and there's no avalanche danger. So that's a long answer, but that's what it's... And there's some essays in here where I, I try to capture some of that. Um, but I, what I didn't want to do is just, you know, there are a few essays like the one I just read uh, about the ecstasy of skiing, but um, a lot of people have written that. Uh, you know, I wanted to write about, you know, what it's like to have your kid's nanny give you a put a catheter in when you've been bitten by a cat and you've nearly died and, and you've all skied together and, 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 you know, because this stuff is done by real people. They have joy, they have sorrow, they have suffering, they have triumph, they, um, they fail, they succeed, they gossip. Um, and that's what's missing from a lot of ski riding. That's a, yeah, that's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. Give me, the vegetable dates. It's, okay. it's a starch. It's a starch. And, you know, the, the thing is you have to eat it when it's fresh because the sugars start to transform to carbohydrates immediately after it's picked. And that... Uh, questions? Yes? Did that small town gossip and all that vulnerability, did that really bug you? Yeah, you know, at first... It's amazing to learn how to live that way. It really is amazing. People, you know, I mean, uh, and I ran Crested Butte Academy, which is the largest private employer in the town for a number of years. And um, I mean, I, I, there were times when I, uh, there was one day I crawled under the bed and there was a parent under my bed ask, asking me questions. But the, uh, no, really, I mean, I couldn't go for a hike. I couldn't go. I expect I would get into the shower and there would be, you know, it was just amazing. It gets really, it can get really annoying, but um, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a great way to live. It's really a better way to live, I think, for most human beings in many ways. But, but I, I, I did want some some balance. Um, 
it really is fascinating. It's anthropologically and sociologically fascinating. And most of, most of the things that come out of it are, are, are good. Um, good for families, good for children, good for character, good for, good for, uh, you have a very strong sense of community because the bottom line is that even if people disagree and fight, which strangely enough they do when the chips are down and they often are down, um, you know, because it's life, uh, people will be there. I mean, people die. Um, People die tragically. They die in ski accidents. They get hit by cars. They overdose on drugs. They, And the interesting thing is you actually have more contact with that in a community like that, in a village. Um, it's very interesting because people will come to a place like CB and say, oh, it, there's no diversity here. Well, and in a certain sense, that's true. You know, I mean, there, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of, um, you know, it's too small to have all of these, you know, the kinds of diversity that you would have in a city. But at the same time, uh, you really have to get along with people. And as a result, there are people who are very different from you. And there is a range of opinion and behavior and background. And, um, uh, and you know, that boy, that that's quite a learning curve. You know, you really do have to get along with people. Uh, but yeah, it, it can get tiresome. That's a good question. Yeah. I didn't know you lived there. How long did you live there? Uh, uh, on and off. Also out to California. Yeah. Back again. Out to California. Yeah. Yeah. Kept the Colorado plates the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I go up there still. I still have friends. No kidding. I bet I know some of them. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I've been there. I've, I first went to Crested Butte in 1980, and I moved there, and I started hanging out there a lot in 1990, and it's changed since then as well. Well, a lot of the same people are there, and it's changed. Uh, you know, we're very fortunate uh, because of um, – I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but – or maybe I should just say more trouble. I mean, our, our, the, the management of our ski hill was not uh, the most competent, and as a result, for a number of reasons, we um, didn't grow anywhere near as quickly as a lot of other places – and um, and it's very isolated and very cold and very steep. And there are all these reasons. You know, the airport's 30 miles away and the weather gets bad. And it's often so cold that, you know, you stick to your car door handle and stuff like that. But the um, uh, so it changed a lot more slowly than a lot of other places. And there's a lot of continuity there. A lot of local people were able to get into the real estate market. Um, we developed alternative real estate markets that weren't far away where people could still buy in. And um it's changed, but it really hasn't changed that much. It has a lot of character and a lot of integrity. And a lot of the people who lived there back then, the families are, are still there. Um, very, it didn't explode in quite the same way as, say, an Aspen or a Telluride or a Breckenridge for all sorts of different reasons. And, you know, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's changed. But Sue Navy is still there and Eric Ross is still there and Eric Romer is still there, malheureusement. And... Uh, the, and many others, many, many, many others, um, the Eflins. Uh, in fact, some of the old timers are still alive and the families still hang out, the Ackliches. And I knew Tony Mihalik. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, change, change happens. But uh, it's still a pretty good place to live and it's still pretty small. Um, and a lot, I was, I'll say this. I mean, what has, despite all the problems and all the conflicts, um, 
uh, it's still in many ways a, a kind of an experiment in a one-class society. Uh, there isn't a lot of separation. People get along. Um, and there are a lot of working people who can still live in the community. Unlike, say, Aspen, where they all have to live quite far down valley and you have traffic jams. We don't have that. People live in Crested Butte South or up on the mountain. But I mean, I know I have some friends who are one of their couple. He's a school teacher, a very, very fine math teacher. And she works for, she's a geologist and they're just ordinary folks. And they, they were able to get a mortgage um, up on the, they're also great athletes. He always, Tori Carroll, he just he kicks my ass every time we go out. It's really annoying. But uh, And he grew up there, and he was able to get a mortgage. They have two kids. So I would say, of course, it's changed. You know, the streets are paved and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of continuity and a lot of heart there. It's a great place. I saw some other hands. Questions? J.D.? Zero, yes. I've done, I've done that, you know. Got to be very careful, because if you fall, you are in big trouble. Uh, we used to have, you know, this. there was this huge, um, the, the final day at Crested Butte used to be a naked ski day, and, and it was a big deal. And then there was this tradition, the last shuttle bus of the year was called the Moon Bus. And there would be pictures on the front page of the paper of 25 people sticking their butts out of the windows of the, out of the bus, you know, and... Uh, but, you know, that more and more that was frowned upon. And it seemed to pass as a kind of a fad. But, uh, yes, I was once, um, I was once on, uh, out there on that day. And um, there was a young, a young, rather nervous, very bright, slightly nerdy, charming guy who was in his first year of teaching. He was teaching math. He'd graduated from Amherst. And he was very anxious about skiing naked. But he decided he was going to do it. So I was there, and I had a backpack, and I said, okay, Dave, great. And he, so he, you know, he managed, he, I, th- I don't know if he took off his ski boots or not, but he stripped down, and I took all of his clothes in the backpack, and at that point, two of his students skied up to him. <laughs> and he just stood there, and he looked at me, and he looked at them, and they sort of stared at him in, in astonishment, and they were 15 and 16, a, bo- a brother and a sister, and he just looked at him and said, hello, Alexandra. Hello, Edward. I'm, I'll, I'll see you at the bottom. And, you know, and he, was, he, was about, he was about 22 years old. And it was just, I thought, boy, that's a, that's a good moment. You know? that's, a, that's a good moment. That's the kind of thing that happens. I mean, and, and it's great. You know, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's all part of their education, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Lori. Yes, it did. And could you kind of explain that a little bit? Did sure. Did you live there and absorb it? Or? I didn't know I was writing it. <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I started writing these essays because I loved skiing and I loved writing and there's ski writing and they pay money for it. My God, they actually pay by the word. I thought, when the first time I heard that, you, you're going to pay me by the word? I thought, you know, what a concept. Um, the... Uh, and it really did pay pretty well. I mean, I got, you know, a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks for writing a lot of these, each one. And, and 
20 years, 15 years ago. And, and it came, I've published 50 or 60 of these essays and it came to me over time that the best ones and the ones that I cared about the most fit this theme of, of being, um, what we would call in the publishing industry evergreen in that they really, um, they, they, they were focused around the way people live. You know, when you start doing this, you want powder to buy you a trip to the Wasatch, to, to the, to the, um, to the Chugach in Alaska, you know, all expenses paid, go ride a helicopter and hunk off big cliffs and then come back and say, man, that was so great. But the, which is of course great fun, but I became less and less interested in exotica travel and all of that. And I just, I realized that nobody had figured out an idiom or very few had figured out an idiom that really mattered the most to me, which is the kinds of stories I'm telling here, which are about real people living, who've made a deep, deep choice to live this life and what that really means. Um, uh, and that became more and more fascinating to me. Because, and then I realized that this is what is at the core of, of all the great writing about such kinds of activities. That the, uh, and, and so it took me a long time to sort of get to the place where I, I was completely intimate with that idiom. Because there were only about, well, there are several dozen people, I think, who are sort of doing this in one way or another now. Uh, a lot of it's relatively recent, though. And they're really good writers. Like Peter Shelton's a good example. Um, uh, uh, and uh, there's a number of people. Um, strangely enough, they're mostly men, and I wish there were more women doing it. There are uh, uh, there are some who are starting to emerge, though. And in any event, the uh, uh, and that's why it took a long time. But now the next one, I think, will go relatively easily because I really know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and how to do it. Um, and they're not all funny. I mean, I know a lot of what I read tonight is funny, but that's because it's fun to make people laugh. People people die in this book, um, sadly, tragically too young and so on and so forth um, uh, because that's what happens in real life. And that, that's why it took a long time because it really uh, took me a long time to figure out what mattered. And, but now I feel like I know. <laughs> so great question. Um, so what's the next one? The next one. Well, I mean, I have, there's a book of poems that's supposed to be coming with, um, uh, red hen, but maybe I'll give it to Caleb. I mean, it's called go big and it actually a number like, uh, that as you might be able to tell, uh, dreamline began as verse. I actually prosified it. It's very funny. You know, I, I turned it from verse into prose. It was sloppy with manic versicles. I turned it into, I just turned it into periodic sentences. Um, so, uh, so I don't know what I'll do with it, but it's, it, there's, there's a lot of this, uh, it's a lot of this stuff. Um, I'm going to close by plugging, or do you want to plug it? You're going to plug it. I have a, I, I'm teaching two classes in the next um, term. They start, there's one on Monday that is uh, Ulysses. That one's pretty full, but I think that, no, yes, it is Ulysses, and it's Monday night at 6.30, and, you know, uh, there's still a few seats left in that, and the other one is a course on stanza forms, if you're curious, and why? Funny you should ask. You know, I mean, most of the great long poems in English have been written in repeating stanza forms. Couplets, tercets, quatrains, Venus and Adonis stanzas, named for Shakespeare's great Venus and Adonis stanza. Uh, um, Audivarima, which is what Byron wrote Don Juan in the whole thing. Um, called Juan because it rhymes with true one. You know, it's a doggerel rhyme on purpose. Uh, Spencerian stanzas, which are the stanza of the, of the fairy queen. Um, so it's sort of, since most of the really great, long, successful poems in English have been written in these stanza forms, the narrative poems, um, they're really interesting to study. They're a lot of fun. 
Pope, you read Pope, then you really come to understand how his couplets work and so on and so forth. And we scan them and we practice them and we think about them and we hurl them at each other and make mistakes and have a good time. So uh, there's still seats in that one. Join us if you can. Um, I'm really grateful to Mike and to Dan and to everybody here at, at Lighthouse. This is really great fun. I'm happy to hang around and um, sign books and, and drink as much of this wine as we possibly can. <laughs> Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.